There's an old saying. There's an old saying. An old saying. That you don't like a lawyer until you need one. You don't like a lawyer until you need one. This past week, I, I was reading about a little girl and her mother. And they're going to the cemetery to visit where the grandmother was buried. After visiting the site and coming back through the cemetery area, this little girl said to her mother, Mommy, do they ever bury two people in a grave? Ever bury two people in a grave? Of course not, dear, replied the mother. Why would you think that? The little girl responded. The tombstone back there read, Here lies a lawyer and an honest man. <laughs> Thanks, Carl, for laughing. <laughs> that was a really stretch. I know that was a corny one. Okay. All right. I bring that up and I share that with you because in Romans chapter 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul is like a prosecuting attorney and God is the judge and humanity is on trial. And the Apostle Paul is making this case against people. And first of all, he starts off with what we call the rebellious folks, the rebellious people. These are those individuals who basically say, God is dead. God does not exist. And if he exists, he's like a cosmic Santa Claus someplace. He doesn't really care about humanity. And I'm going to live like I want to live. Screw guilt. Screw morality. I'm going to live just every titter-tottle for my own desires and what I want to do. I'm going to commit adultery when I want to commit adultery. I'm going to commit idolatry. I'm going to be all kinds of, uh, in, in all kinds of perversions and uh, whatever it may be. He talks about that kind of person in Romans chapter 1. Now in Romans chapter 2, he talks about the respectable person. This is the moralist. This is the person who says, compared to the rebellious person, I'm pretty good. I'm good. I, I pay my income taxes. I don't cheat. Uh, I, I don't lie. Uh, maybe tell a little white fudge here and there, but I don't lie uh, that much. I go to work. I'm faithful. I believe in my family. I try to maintain a marital relationship with my spouse. I've been faithful to her and faithful to the, to the things that, you know, what I feel like is right. Compared to that rebellious person, I'm a good person. Well, the problem is, is that you see, God doesn't grade on the scale. Truly, he doesn't grade on the scale. If my good things outweigh my bad things, then I'm going to be acceptable before God. But the Bible says, the Apostle Paul reiterates this over and over again, that the wrath of God is revealed against all of humanity because we're all sinners in God's sight. And then, in Romans chapter 2, the second part, the Apostle Paul talks about what we would call the Jewish person or what we would consider the religious person in today's world. And the 
Jewish person and the religious person of that day, the Apostle Paul knew very well because he was one of them at one time. He was a Pharisaical Jew. He was very, very religious. And he's trying to write to these individuals. He's writing to the Greek believers and he's writing to these Jewish believers and he's trying to win these people to not know Christ. And he's saying religion in and of itself will not save anybody. And in verses 17 through 29, the people of that day really believed that because of their cultural and religious and ethnic background, that these things would make them right before God. Paul has them saying, I'm a Jew, meaning I have a special place in God's economy, meaning that I have special favor with God because I'm born a Jew. If you asked a Jewish person at that particular time, do you have a right relationship with God? They would say, of course, I'm a Jew. It is obvious, like the nose on my face. If you were to talk with religious people today, and you were to say, are you a Christian? A lot of people say, of course, I was born in a Christian nation. I was born almost in a Baptist church. I was born in a Methodist church. I was born in a Presbyterian church. Well, if you're born in a car, does that make you a spare tire? No. Absolutely not. And so, it's not right thinking. Think that your ethnic background is somehow going to make you uh, right before God. Paul says you call yourself a Jew because they had supreme confidence in their ethnic background. Second, these Jewish religious people had supreme confidence that they had a right relationship with God because they had God's holy word, the scriptures. And they were instructed in the scriptures. And Paul says, that won't save you just because you know God's word and because you have God's holy word. The third thing they also said, we are highly favored because we observe all of these rituals. Sabbath keeping, dietary laws, and circumcision. We are circumcised. Did you know that I read this last week that rabbinic law, the rabbis would teach that a man that was circumcised, a Jewish person that was circumcised, would never ever descend into Gehenna, their place that they considered hell. If you were circumcised, it automatically uh, prevented you from going to that terrible, awful place. Now, today we're talking about the Christian rituals of baptism, or perhaps formal church membership, or we're talking about communion. Well, if you become, think about this, I'm a member of the church, therefore I'm a Christian. If you become a member of the Elks Lodge down here, does that make you an elk? No. If you become a member of the Lions Club, does that, does that make you a lion, literally? Some people will say, well, I was baptized. Well, you could be baptized down here in the tributary of the John Day River until every single fish knows your name. But that does not save you. Communion doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Um, these are all external rituals that people often get confused about thinking that these things in of themselves are going to bring us into a right relationship with God. And it just doesn't work that way. I want you to notice 
uh, in review what he says in chapter 2, verse 28. Look at it with me. A person is not a Jew. May I add the word Christian? Chapter 2, verse 28. A person is not a Jew, Christian, who is only one outwardly. Outwardly. And physical. No, a person is a Jew, Christian, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. In other words, we are saved and we have a right relationship with God when we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's not by heritage. It's not by ritual. It's not by church membership. It's not by circumcision. It's not by uh, communion. It's not by baptism. Now, we observe these things as Christian people. What we say is, is that there should be an inward reality and an outward expression. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm born again by God's Spirit, and therefore I observe communion, I'm baptized, I have formal church membership. These are outward symbols of an inward reality. Let me see if I can illustrate what I'm talking about. Last month, correct me if I got the right date, Kathy, April 3rd? <laughs> yes, I got the right date. Can't believe it. No, I, I know the date. Last month, April 3rd, we celebrated 33 years. We are married in Northern California at a community church there, in that community. And just like you, those fellows who are married, I still remember that day. It's in my mind. There was Kathy in the back, hanging on the arm of her dad. All of the groomsmen had come forward in these brown tuxedos. And all of the ladies over here, the bridesmaids, and there was the um, flower girl, and there was the ring bearer. Minister said a couple of things, and Kathy made her way down. Beautiful music was playing. Tears came to my eyes because I saw my beautiful bride. There were two words that I said that day that changed the course of my life. And I'm still working out the implications of those things. I'm a work in progress, and she's training me. I admit it. Come on, fellas. How many of you admit you're a work in progress? Amen. But I said two words that day that changed my life. When I said, I do, my life was changed. May I suggest to you that when you commit your life to Christ and you say yes, yes, yes to Christ, yes, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior, I receive you as my Lord, that's the moment that your life is changed, spiritually speaking. Now, I wear this wedding ring as a symbol of what happened back on April 3rd, 1982. This is an outward symbol of the fact that I'm married. But this wedding ring does not make me married. How many people get confused about baptism, church membership, and communion, thinking that those things save them and that they're justified and makes them have a right relationship with God. These are outward symbols 
of an inward reality. Does that make sense? This is all review from last week. Let's fast forward to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Now, it's at this particular point in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, again, is this prosecuting attorney. And it's at this particular point, you've you got to think of the Apostle Paul. He's always having a two-way conversation. And he encountered these individuals when he was teaching in the synagogue. He encountered these people when he did the open-air meetings. He encountered these individuals from house to house. He was used to people standing up and objecting. And so I imagine that this is, is a defense attorney. He's the prosecuting attorney. God is the judge. We're all on trial. And all of a sudden, a defense attorney pops up and he poses three questions. Three questions. Three objections to what Apostle Paul has just been teaching. Look at question number one. What advantage then? Is there in being a Jew? If circumcision doesn't save you, if dietary laws doesn't save you, if church membership doesn't save you, if you're a religious person, if communion doesn't save you, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or dash Christian? Or what value is there in circumcision? These are important questions. And the first question that the Apostle Paul deals with is the specialness or the uniqueness of the Jewish people. Are we unique? Are we special? What advantage is there if you're telling me that I'm not, I don't receive salvation if I don't receive these things, you know, by observing, if, if, I, if I'm not justified before God, then what? Why be a Jew? Why be born as a Jew? Or a religious person might say, why be religious? If working hard and going to church and tithing and being obedient and faithful to God, why should I do all these things if it doesn't earn me a place in heaven? These are good questions. Is there any advantage to be a, uh, being a Jewish religious person over a pagan? And I want you to know how Paul answers this question. Notice in verse 2. Look at it with me. He says, much, don't get it, don't miss it, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Yes, absolutely, there is an advantage in being born a Jewish person and having, specifically, the Apostle Paul, the, the very first thing he says is, is that you have an advantage because you have been given the Old Testament you have been given the Word of God. The Word of God has been entrusted to the Jewish people. And we, as Christian people, we owe a great debt to Jewish people because they have preserved the Old Testament for thousands of years. We have that. And he talks about other advantages in, in chapter 9 and verses uh, 4 and 5. But of all of these advantages, this is the number one advantage. The Jewish people has been entrusted with the Word of God. They were given the very words of God. They were to care for it. They were to protect it. And they did so. They preserved the Old Testament years ago. George Lucas made the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Good movie. Bad biblical history. Bad theology. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangle box. 
gold inside, gold on the outside, cherubims on top. The Ark of the Covenant was not really that special in and of itself. It wasn't really that special. It became special because God's Word, the Ten Commandments, was placed inside the Ark. Did you know that God instructed Solomon to build a whole temple so that basically you could place the ark in the temple area and so you would have the commandments of God inside the ark. They were special because they received the word of God and they were to preserve the word of God. But did you know that God also told the Jewish people, I don't only want you to preserve the word of God, but I, I want you to share it. I want you to share it. I want you to be evangelists. I want you to be missionaries. I don't want you to just sit on a mountaintop someplace or put hide your light underneath a bushel like that song tells us. I don't want you to do that. I want you to share my word. You're special because I want you to share to other people about me. And unfortunately, at this particular time, many Jewish people did not take this to heart. I'm special. You're not. I'm highly favored. You're not. And they took that kind of attitude with the Gentile people. Well, I'm reminded of the agony and the ecstasy. You remember that? Agony and the ecstasy. Michelangelo, played by Charlton Heston, and the Pope says to Michelangelo, I want you to paint the 16th Chapel Basilica in Rome. Paint the inside. He said, I don't want to do it. And the Pope insisted and said, I want you to paint the Basilica because I want you to display, I want people to understand the message and the majesty of God. And that's what the Jewish people were supposed to do. They were given the very scriptures. They were supposed to share God's word with other people and share the message of the majesty and the messianic promises that were there. So the first question has to do with the Jewish people's uniqueness and specialness. The second question that this uh, attorney, this defense attorney raises, is about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. And I want you to look at this uh, second question with me. Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? The question can be asked this way. And here it is. Is is God unfaithful to the promises? Is God unfaithful to the promises He gave to the Jewish people and nation just because there were some people who were Jewish people that were unfaithful? In other words, is all the promises that God gave the Jewish people, will God go back on those promises? Will He renege? Will He back up? Will He not keep His word because the Jewish people themselves were unfaithful? That's a good question. We're talking about the faithfulness of God. And Paul indicates for sure there were some Jewish people that were unfaithful to God. The whole Old Testament talks about that. There were some who were, some who were and some who were not. In other words, will God give up on the Jewish nation because 
people, Jewish people themselves, were unfaithful. And we read about their unfaithfulness all the way through the Old Testament. Did God make a promise to the Jewish people? Yes, He did. Did the Jewish people keep the part of the bargain? No, no, they did not always. Then can God break His promise? And I want you to look at how the Apostle Paul answers the question. Second part of verse 4. Or excuse me, verse 4. Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Did you know that the Greek phrase he uses for not at all is the strongest negative that you can use in the Greek? In other words, it can be translated not at all as no, 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 no. No. Not at all. Just because there were some Jewish people that were unfaithful does not negate all the promises that God has promised His Jewish people. Paul says, not at all. No, absolutely not. God is faithful and He keeps His promises. Now, there are conditional promises. We know about that. There are conditional promises. Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God. That's a condition. And all of these things will be added unto you. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in God with all your heart. And He promises to direct your path. There's a condition... There's, there's a, a, a condition and then there's a, a, there's a promise. But what he's talking about right here is all of the unconditional promises that God had promised to the Jewish people. For instance, God promised that the Messiah would be given to the Jewish people. And did they deserve the Messiah? Were they faithful through the years of the Old Testament? They weren't, but God sent the Messiah anyway. God is saying, even though there was disobedience, I still love them and fulfill the promises to them. And this should encourage us today because Paul is saying that God is not through with the children of Israel and the Jewish nation. And he has extended many promises to us as Christian people despite our failures and our disobedience as well. I can't remember if I've ever talked about this story. Perhaps I did on one other occasion. But like a dummy, how many fellows like to do their own home projects? Not like to do, most people do. I was doing a home project. I was changing out the single-pane windows to double-pane windows in our our house. It was at 7 o'clock at night. It was at dusk time. And I was on my last window and had my last nail. All I had to do was put one more nail in. I was on top of the ladder and I felt the ladder buckle. And instead of repositioning the ladder, I thought, I can do it. And I swung the hammer one more time and the ladder buckled and I fell off the ladder and landed on my side. And there just happened to be a pile of bricks right there. I landed on my side. I was kind of laying there, wiggling, thought, oh, I feel pretty good. And didn't have any pain at all. And so I finished putting away my tools and I went in the house and did some more things. The next morning, (laughs) the next morning, 
Every time I breathe, every time I move, every time I cough, every time I raised up, every time I laughed, every time I swallowed, every time I blew my nose, every time I did anything and everything, excruciating, shooting pain went through my side. It was the worst pain I've ever had in my life. Anybody have that kind of pain ever before? Anybody ever broke a rib or anything like that? It's excruciating. Just terrible, awful. And I couldn't do anything, and I couldn't get any rest. And I was in my recliner, and, and I was taking uh, 3,000 milligrams of ibuprofen a day. That's the, that's the maximum amount. And I was getting you know, hardly any sleep, and the only way I could sleep was in my recliner. And the only way I could rest was in my recliner. And I was stuck there, and I got bored with TV after the second day. How many of you get bored with TV after the second day? And I couldn't read. I couldn't hold the book up. And the only thing I could do was listen to tapes. And, and, and I was, all I did was daydream and meditate, and I was bored out of my brains. And... And finally I go, God, what do you want me to do? How come I'm here? What's happening? Why me? Why now? Why this? You've asked those questions. And and I begin to question God's faithfulness and, uh, you know, He's planned for my life. And I know I'm not going to be crippled the rest of my life, but it's it's just terrible. It's awful. I have to go through this terrible thing. And some of you have gone through it for years. I didn't even know how you do it, but it was just... So, after a week of this pity party stuff, I, I began to uh, read the Bible as much as I could, and I ran across that promise. And it became, it became my life verse, one of my life verses, and as many of your life verses as well. For I know the plans I have I have for you. They're good plans and not evil plans to give you a future and a hope. Every day I quoted that verse. Every night I quoted that verse. Sometimes I whispered that verse. Sometimes I shouted that verse. Or I know the plans I have for you. They are good plans and not evil plans to give you a future and a hope. You see, God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. But this is why they ask the third question. If God is faithful even when I am unfaithful, am I not presuming upon God's grace? Notice how the third question is asked here. Look at it with me. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Here's how the Phillips translation reads. But if our wickedness advertises the goodness of God, do we feel that God is being unfair to punish us in return? You've just said that God is faithful and that God will forgive you and that God will walk beside you even when we're unfaithful to Him. Therefore, it seems, when I sin, God forgives me, and when I sin more, 
God will forgive me even more than every time I sin. It makes God look good. It makes God look good because it shows how forgiving He is. Therefore, shouldn't... Why should He be upset when I sin? Because my sin makes God look good. Do you see the convoluted thinking here? It was flawed thinking. And these individuals really believe that. They really believe that the Apostle Paul was teaching that. And I want you to notice the Apostle Paul's answer in verses 6 through 8. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? And their condemnation is just. Let me just say this. When you believe in grace, when you teach grace, when you teach that you can be forgiven of any sin, when you go to that extreme and say it's all about God's grace, it's not about works, there will be individuals who will stand up and say, what you're doing is you're giving sin a license. You're giving sin a license. You're saying that you can do anything you want to do and God will forgive you. That's flawed logic and thinking. Let me see if I can illustrate by borrowing some illustrations from others. Let's say that you go out and you get strep throat. He says, the doctor says, I have a wonder drug. You just have a minor case of strep throat. This drug can wipe out your strep throat immediately. What if you said, let's just wait for a few days. Let's pray that I get a super severe case of strep throat so that it will really demonstrate how powerful your wonder drug is. Let's just go out and let's commit gross immorality. Let's sleep with whoever. Let's take all kinds of drugs. Let's take all kinds of alcohol so that I can prove how wonderful God's grace is, how He will forgive me, how I can have a super abundance of His grace. Why would God hold me in judgment on that? Because it shows His goodness and it shows His forgiveness and it shows His love and it shows His grace. Somebody said it's like taking your child to the grandpa's house. Your grandpa's kind of old and senile, and he's gumming his teeth, and and uh, so you take him to the to the uh, grandpa's house. You drop off your kids, and your kids have a heyday at grandpa's house. They just go through grandpa's house, and they get into this and they get into that and Grandpa's sitting around smiling, kind of senile and the kids think, Grandpa must love this. Let's do it even more because he's such a pushover because you can't stop him. And you see, a lot of people think of God that way. I've had people come to me, it's true, in the middle of counseling and tell me, Pastor, this is important. I'm going to divorce her, 
And I know that it's wrong. And I know that I'm not going to move. I know it's wrong for me to move in with my girlfriend that I've been seeing on the side. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. I want to say, and I've said, what kind of fool do you think God is? Don't you think that He sees through that? Do you think that a God who would let you get away with that is worthy to be worshipped? Forgiveness is not a license to sin. Never confuse forgiveness with approval. Now, can a parent, can a parent forgive a child for doing something wrong and still let the child reap the consequences of their choices? Absolutely. Maybe they stole candy at the store. Your parents forgave you, but you still had to pay for the candy. You can go out and you can mess up your life. You can make bad decisions. You can make bad choices. You can say, well, I'll do this, I'll do that, whatever it may be. And you can be forgiven. I can be forgiven. But there is consequences to our choices. And we talked about that two weeks ago. If we really got the wrath of God, if we really got what we deserved, we would be all zapped and we wouldn't be here. But the natural consequences are what we reap. And so, a drug addict can be forgiven of their sins, right? But they still, I've known many of them, still suffer the diseases and the consequences of the drug choices. Still reap the results. Paul says, don't presume on God's grace. And some people were actually reporting that Paul was teaching this. He says, I've been slandered. I've been insulted. People are saying Paul is encouraging loose living. Now again, any time a pastor talks about God's grace, God's forgiveness, he will be accused and often misrepresented by someone believing that he's teaching about loose living. Paul is not saying that grace and forgiveness is a result of, um, of this kind of thinking. I'm out of time. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me, please?